good to be here this afternoon and appreciate all of you being here and we certainly have had a great week. I want to take just a moment and thank the congregation here, certainly the elders here for the invitation to come and to spend this week with you. Certainly want to thank several others in the process that have had us in your home and fed us this week or taken us out to eat or something along those lines and, and your hospitality has just been fantastic and we really do appreciate that. To all these young folks, God bless you guys. Really do appreciate everything you guys have done this week. You put a lot of joy and a lot of uh, smiles on our faces. And you guys have worked hard. I hope that at the end of this week, you feel like you've been blessed in being here. I hope you go home with some knowledge maybe you didn't have before. uh, Whether it be in singing or teaching God's Word, those kind of things. And that your lives truly have been enriched uh, by this week. And I think the plans that the congregation have put forth have really uh, helped in that. And I pray that you guys will take everything anybody can teach you and learn it. Um, and, and it'll benefit you as you go through life. We've been talking all week long about we're part of a family. We're part of the family of God. And we talked about that from the angle of uh, being a part of the house of God. Uh, so we're a part of God's family uh, in the sense that we have local responsibilities in the family. We're a part of the body of Christ. We have, uh, we're a part of a local congregation of God's family. Uh, we're a part of the church universal, if we could use that term. Uh, we're all, we've also talked about moms and dads and part of our individual families. We saw in our video this afternoon, we're part of a community family. Uh, this week, you guys have been ministering uh, to a community as well. And, and we have relationships in so many different ways. And tonight, I want to close out by talking a little bit about our homes. And again, I want to get to the purpose. And that is Psalm 127 and verse number 1. And that says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And if the Lord's not behind it, uh, it has a tendency to come crumbling down. And it does not accomplish what you're trying to get accomplished. And the purpose behind it truly, truly matters. We've talked to you the last couple of days about the importance of planning. If you're going to build something from a physical standpoint, if we were building a house, uh, that it would be an important aspect to, to plan appropriately. Uh, ahead of time to make sure that at the end result you get what it is that you plan for in the design where you want stuff and what needs to be included needs to be a part of the plans. We've talked about uh, addressing the code issues and things like that related to making sure that the code is the appropriate code. And if you're building a physical house, those codes change all the time. And I will tell you there's been some code changes in the sense between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We live under the New Testament But we want to make sure we're appealing to that code and looking at that code. And that code is never going to change. You can memorize it. You can learn it. You can build your life around it. And it's something that's not going to be changing every three or four years. Uh, And you can actually uh, help determine the future uh, of your spiritual life, etc. by anchoring on that code. We talked about the importance of a foundation. If you're building a house, everything else is built on foundation. And uh, there are times... Uh, in physical construction that I'm amazed that people have cut corners on the foundation and built an elaborate house on top of something that they've cut corners on. And the foundation is the anchor of all of that. You can put thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on top of a bad foundation and you've just wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars because uh, it will all ultimately come crashing down if it doesn't have a good foundation and so we talked about that, and we talked about Matthew seven twenty four that says, uh, Jesus is speaking, he said, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And when the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, they beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And then he said, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I will liken him to a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. 
The rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And I will tell you that the foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, we talked about the apostles and prophets and the structure aspect of the church, but Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone is the foundation upon which we build our church life, our churches, uh, and as well as our spiritual life from an individual standpoint. We talked about the structure. We talked about wind bracing it because the storms will come. The rains are going to descend. The floods are going to come. The wind's going to blow. It's going to happen. It's going to happen to you in your life. You're going to go through tragedy. When that happens, what kind of bracing do you have for that? Can you walk through it? And can the house still stand? Can your spiritual house, if uh, so be it, still stand? We talked about uh, bracing that structure in a physical sense or using different approaches to brace it, but it matters. Then we talked about the function, the inside of the house and in worship. That's part of what we talked about this morning was uh, uh, making that house come alive. That when you turn on the water, the water does what the water is supposed to do. And you turn on the electricity, the electricity does what the electricity is supposed to do. When you turn on the air conditioning unit, it does what it's supposed to do. The mechanical aspects of that house as well. And I will tell you in our physical lives... All of those principles that we've talked about over the last several lessons apply when it comes to our homes. We're God's house. Our, our, our individual aspect of I'm, uh, I'm the temple of God and my home, my wife and I are, are creating a house that belongs to God. Our children belong to God. I think of the story of Manoah. If you remember in the Old Testament, Manoah was Samson's parents and Manoah dedicated themselves so uh, and dedicated their child to the service of God. And I think parents need to do that as well. And a lot of that comes, let's take some of these principles. If you take your home life, and especially to these young folks, before you think about getting married, you ought to be planning on getting married. You ought to be planning appropriately toward marriage and not just getting married or not just getting into a relationship without some sort of planning involved. That your your mind, your thoughts has gone toward what do I want it to be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 13 says, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. I want you to focus in on the phrase only in the Lord. Now, we were talking this afternoon, had a great conversation this afternoon about raising young men and... and uh, the brother was talking about his dad told him to marry a church girl. And we got to visiting about that. And, you know, I mean, generically speaking, I agree with that, obviously. Now, I grant you, this scripture here was talking about widows that had lost a husband. If they were going to remarry, they need to marry in the Lord. And that they need to marry somebody who shares a common faith with them. And I certainly think that principle is true in every aspect of, of our life. If you're looking for a first husband or you're looking for a first wife, you're dating somebody, date somebody that you share the same values with. It's amazing to me. In, in the case of Lisa and I, we're one in intent, one in purpose. We're going to raise children together, etc. But we're not going to think about being one together spiritually. The most important aspect of our life and trying to keep our priorities right and God being first. And we're not going to try to be one together spiritually. That would be the most important decision of that. And I'd want to share that with somebody who shared those spiritual values, who shared that at home. And it's going to make the rest of our home life easier if we share that intimacy in a spiritual intimacy also. And I, you know, we talk a lot of times about marriage and physical intimacy and other aspects of emotional intimacy. 
But the reality is spiritual intimacy ought to be a part of that relationship. You ought to be planning on, if you're planning on getting married, you ought to plan on marrying somebody that you share values with and you share the same common values. Now, what I was visiting with a brother about is, you know, it's real easy for a dad to say, marry a church girl. But I want to tell you, I want you to marry a church girl that really is a church girl, that lives being a church girl, not a church girl that sits on a pew or in the case of a of a young lady, marry a church boy. There's a, and I'm telling you guys, this happens. Somebody says, well, I married in the church. I married somebody, but they weren't living it. They weren't doing it. They, it really wasn't in their heart. They were sitting on a pew. Sitting on a pew is not marrying a church girl. Sitting on a pew is not marrying a church guy. Sitting on a pew is not sharing the same spiritual intimacy in marriage. You want somebody who truly shares the values with you or you're going to get locked up in a situation where you are fighting against something or in the case of a lot of times young women think in the case of Lisa and I and raising daughters concerned about marrying a young man they can change you know he's got potential you know we can change him it, just imagine what we could do with our influence in his life well what you end up with a lot of times is locked into a relationship that does not work because you got a young man that doesn't want to be changed sometimes not saying that happens all the time. There's instances of individuals that I could name you where people married folks that were not members of the church or whatever, and their lives have blended together and they have become members of the church. They share spiritual intimacy. But I am telling you, you spiritual intimacy ought to be an important aspect of what you're looking for in a relationship in marriage. And you ought to plan that ahead of time. To our young folks especially, but obviously to all of us, if we're planning before marriage, 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 8 says, flee fornication. Let me tell you, in the case of Lisa and I raising four daughters, some of the speeches we had with our four daughters was, you're going to end up physically intimate with somebody. If you engage in sexual relations before marriage, you're going to end up physically committed or physically intimate with somebody before you have an emotional commitment. Before you have a spiritual commitment and you're getting things out of order if you do that. And I would not in any way encourage anybody to make a decision to get physically intimate or physically involved before they have a spiritual commitment or a spiritual intimacy. And they need to recognize the importance of keeping those priorities in line or you end up being in a relationship that creates chaos. You end up with some consequences for decisions that end up losing a lot of blessing in life. Because you've gotten things out of order. The Bible says flee fornication. Your spiritual purity ought to be something. And it ought to matter to you. And spiritual intimacy, sharing those values with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, whatever the situation would be, ought to be important. Another thing I think you ought to plan before you get married, before you get married and that is that it ought to be a lifelong relationship. And you ought to plan on being married to be married. And to stay married. There are a lot of relationships out in the world today where folks are, um, they start talking about um, getting married as though it's Kleenex that you can use and throw away. Well, if it doesn't work out, well, we'll just do something different. And I want to tell you, marriage is a lot more serious than that. And the intimacy in marriage and all of those things we talked about, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy in marriage... Uh, somebody ought to enter into that covenant and recognize that as a lifelong covenant. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter 7 of verse number 2, For the woman who hath a husband is bound to the law, uh, or bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she's loose from the law of her husband. 
So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. The Bible teaches the importance of that lifelong relationship. Now, in dealing with this subject, I recognize when I speak to a congregation of 100 people that there are things that happen in life, and they happen in our family too. And I promise you, I'm not chewing on you today. And I recognize there's challenges in in relationships. I beg for a little mercy to be able to talk about these things. But I'll tell you a little bit more about this before I close the sermon. But my mom and dad divorced. I've, I've seen it in my own family. I understand what I'm talking about. And I'm telling you, life is not easy at times. And there are challenges that face us in life. But I can tell you, my dad, who has been divorced... He's going to sit on a pew and he's going to say, Ty, you need to teach this stuff to these young people and they need to recognize the importance of this stuff before they get married, regardless of what my dad went through or regardless of what my mother went through. These young folks still need to be aiming before marriage and planning before marriage that it's a lifelong relationship. You don't go into a marriage thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just we'll throw it away and do something different. And I can tell you in the case of Lisa and I, the D word is not mentioned in our house. It's one of those things we agreed to before marriage. We just don't talk about the D word. If we have a very bad day and have intense moments of fellowship, we do not mention the D word. That is crossing the line in our house. It's just a no, no word. You do not go there. And besides that, why would I want to go there? That's not what I want out of my marriage. I went into that marriage for a lifelong relationship. She went into that marriage for a lifelong relationship. I don't want to mention the D word. And when I say D word, I don't mean Dallas. We want it to be code certified. We want it to be according to the code. We're looking to the word of God for building that relationship. We want it to have a proper foundation, the proper structure involved as well. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 24. Then therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They shall be one flesh. You leave, then you cleave, and you'll be one flesh. And that's the way the scriptures teach that marriage ought to take place. There's requirements or there are instruction in scripture according to the code to build good, strong homes. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might be able to sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might be able to present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know there's going to come a day when this church, this family of God is going to be presented back to God. And it's supposed to be presented back holy and without blemish, without spot. And you know the passage, the context of those scriptures started off with husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. He gave us an example for how husbands ought to be. Husbands ought to be those kind of men that love their wives. And that means the words you speak, the actions you you have in your home or that you take in your home need to be actions or words that show that you love them. Continuing on with Ephesians 5, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. We brush our teeth in the morning, we comb our hair in the morning, we bathe ourselves, etc. We take care of our bodies. And he's saying, you do that with your wife. You care for her good. You care for her wellness and her being as well. First Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7, some instruction given to the husbands. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers 
be not hindered. Now I can tell you just for fun, you can have this discussion of what it means to be a weaker vessel. And I, I enjoy having that discussion. I love to ask the ladies, what does it mean to be a weaker vessel? I can tell you what I believe. And I think it has to do with them physically. Uh, the same verbiage is used, First Thessalonians, that possess your vessel under sanctification and honor, that they're weaker in a physical sense. And I think basically speaking, you put men and women up, and I know there's some women that could put the, you know, whatever on the man in the, in strength and that kind of thing. But generally speaking, there's a reason why the girls basketball team doesn't compete with the boys. Or they, the, the girls' track team doesn't compete with the boys, etc. Because typically the boys are bigger and stronger. And I think this verse is saying you give honor to them because they have a weaker physical structure and you, you care for them. They, it, to me, it's an amazing thing. I see it in my four daughters. I've got Amy that stands about, you know, a hundred pounds and skinny little thing or whatever. And she's married a guy that's every bit of 375 pounds, whatever. You know what she's done with him? She said, I do in marriage, that I'll submit to you. He's big. He's strong. He could, with one hand, boom. I don't know if y'all have ever shaken hands with Jameson. But, I mean, he shook hands with me, and I went, ah. You know, I mean, that's a killer. I mean, that guy is strong. He absolutely, physically could dominate her. But you know what she has said in marriage? I submit to you willingly, and I trust you that you will not abuse me. I'll trust you that you will honor me and respect me. I trust you that you will give honor to me as the weaker vessel. I trust you in doing that. What an amazing trust. She could absolutely not have any of that trust. And there are some women out here in the world we live in, sometimes in the church, where the man has abused that role and abused that relationship and has dominated physically over a woman. And and he's violated Scripture. And here's what I want you to notice that takes place. At the very end of this verse, lest your prayers or that your prayers be not hindered. Do you realize, men, that your relationship with God is directly related to how you treat your wife? How you treat the weaker vessel. Now, I'm not saying she's weaker emotionally. I'm not saying she's... I think they're different emotionally, but I didn't say weaker emotionally. I'm not saying they're weaker spiritually. I'm not even saying they're weaker in some ways physically. I've never spit a child out of my loins, and, and any woman that can do that gets extra credit from me. I think they're pretty strong. But I am saying they're smaller framework, and we need to be gentle, and we need to give honor to them, etc. And this passage says, our prayers, my prayers, my spiritual relation with God is directly affected by how I treat my wife, husbands. Let's stand up and be the men that we need to be. And let's stand up and be the kind of people that we need to be. And let's, let's take care of our, our wives who have honestly, willingly submitted themselves and said, I trust you that even though you're bigger than I am, that you're going to care for me and that you're going to love me and that you're going to honor me and that you're not going to abuse that relationship. First Timothy chapter 5 teaches that a husband ought to be responsible in providing for his own. And the passage says if he doesn't do that, he had denied the faith that he's worse than an infidel. That verse did not say he's an infidel. It said he's worse than an infidel if a man will not provide for his own. First Corinthians 7, verse number 3, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Likewise also the wife to the husband. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 22, To the wives there's some instruction given. 
Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Genesis 2 and 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a help meet for him. That's King James' version of a help that's suitable for him or a help that is fit for him. We've talked about Proverbs 31 this week, the virtuous woman. And certainly that ought to be something that our ladies aspire to and that our men ought to value as well. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse number 2 says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. You know, there is physical intimacy in marriage. That is talked about in Scripture, dealt with in Scripture. That is a part of a marriage relationship. Like I talked about the other night, that's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's something that God honors. In fact, we'll look at some other scriptures. First, uh, uh, First Corinthians 7, continue, The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. Likewise, also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except ye be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. And I know that sounds like a lot of King James language, but basically that says you don't keep... uh, sexual intimacy or physical intimacy away from each other. You don't use that as a tool against each other in a marriage relationship. He said, defraud ye not one the other, uh, except that you give yourselves to fasting and prayer for a period of time. Then you come together again. And the word incontinency there means lack of self-control. In other words, you come together again so Satan doesn't tempt you for your lack of self-control. A woman has a husband, a husband has a man. There's a reason for that, and uh, uh, there are multiple reasons for that. But one of the reasons for that is uh, for that physical intimacy in marriage as well. Hebrews 13 and verse number 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. We need to, as fathers and mothers, help our children recognize uh, how to use physical intimacy and, and where is an appropriate physical intimacy in marriage and that God honors those things. And that's not an embarrassing subject. That's not something that people ought to be ashamed of. Lisa and I are physical or intimate with each other. We're married. That's what is supposed to take place with married people. It's a part of the marriage relationship. Now, we ought to share spiritual intimacy. We ought to share emotional intimacy also. I'm not saying it's all physical intimacy, but that's a part of that relationship. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel unto sanctification and honor. There's that term vessel again. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And just to clarify the word concupiscence, that's talking about uh, sexual immorality or, or just being a wild, uh, physical sort of sexual type individual uh, that not in the lust of concupiscence or sexual immorality, even as the Gentiles. We're not like the Gentiles, folks. You're children of God. You're a Christian person. You're not going to act like animals out there. You can control what you do with your body. And I, I tell you, our society tells our young people a lot of times, you can't control what you do with your body. You, you Young people are going to have sexual intimacy. And young people are... No, they're not. And nor do you have to. You can control what you think about and you can control what you do. And I tell you what, you can tell a lot about your future partner 
If they can control what it is that they're doing also. And you can tell a lot about an individual based upon their ability to control themselves. Control what they think about and control what they are involved with. First Thessalonians chapter 4 again. That no man go beyond to defraud his brother in any manner. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us to uncleanness. But unto holiness. Now let me talk to the kids. You know the Bible gives structure. And gives instruction for young folks also. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I just want to tell you young folks, obey your parents. I'll tell you, if you're sitting here today and you're a youngster and your folks are teaching you something, or they're telling you something, or they're telling you to do something, obey them. And I can tell you the principle of submission in that is a great principle to learn early in life because the rest of your life you're going to have to deal with submission to some level. And I can tell you right now, I know there's some weird situations in the world and and it wouldn't take you very long to Google some weird, weird, weird situations. But typically speaking, and your folks here, there's nobody, nobody, nobody that loves you any more than your mom and dad do. And they want good for you and they want to see you succeed in life. And one of the great pleasures of... Being the age of Lisa and I, one of the great pleasures of being that age is the fact that we get to see our children fly. We get to see them fly out of the nest. We get to see them succeed at what it is that they're wanting to do in life. That is a true joy for a parent to say, get out there, make it happen. We're behind you all the way. We're, we're your biggest supporters. We, we're, we're on your team. We'll help you in that process. But there's nothing greater than watching those kids who, watching those kids cross a, uh, the high school stadium stage to get their high school diplomas. Those are big times for parents. Watching your kids go across to get their uh, college degrees. Those are big times for parents. And there's nobody, nobody more in your camp than your folks. We had one instance in our house, I'll share with you, that Amy, bless her heart, Amy had a little bit of an S-T-U-B-B-O-R-N streak. And um, I walked in the bedroom one day, and she and her mother were in a moment of intense fellowship. And, and basically, it had to do with the fact that her mother said no to her. And she just could not understand how her mother would say no. She had all kinds of reasons why she should be able to do what it was she was asking to, to do and to be involved in. There's some things she did not know that her mother knew, that I also knew. And the answer was going to be no, and it's going to be no to the end of the earth. It just There's nobody loved her any more than her mother. And anyway, I interrupted in that conversation, and I Lisa backed out, and I started talking to Amy. And I said, who loves you any more than your mom? Your mom said no. There's not anybody. You could argue maybe your dad. But I mean, there's not anybody else in this world loves you anymore. And your mother is saying no to you because she loves you, cares about you. Your parents may be saying no to you. I don't want you to go to a party that you don't need to go to. Your parents may say no to you. I don't want you to be involved in this activity or whatever. Sometimes there's things happening that you don't even need to know about. Maybe at your age, you don't even need to be concerned about it. But mom and dad are not S-T-U-P-I-D. Mom and dad have lived some life. Mom and dad may know some things that's happening behind the scenes. Mom and dad may know some information you don't know. And they say no. And then though, I can't believe, you know, somebody else's mom said yes. And every, all the other reasons. 
And the reality is your parents love you and you have a responsibility to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. You got a responsibility to just use your manners and be obedient to what it is that your parents have asked you to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, I will tell you years later, Amy figured out what was going on behind the scenes and she came back and thanked her parents for saying no to some things. Um, my, there have been other instances where my daughters came up to me and said, please say no. You know, I'm going to get asked, would you please say no? I do not want to be involved. Please say no. And I will tell you, my children can use me as the excuse any day they want to. If it's something they don't think they need to be involved in or want to be involved in, they can use me all day long. I'd be happy to say no for them. I'm in camp out on it. Uh, even to the point people go, well, why don't you trust us? And why don't you, why in the world would you say, you know, and other parents or why do you, has nothing to do with trusting you? The answer is no. You know, I, I didn't say anything about you, your parenting, anything about you. All I did was say, my daughter's not going to go. That's what I said. And I will tell you, there's nobody loves you any more than your parents. They're going to try to help you and protect you and want you to be successful at life. You need to respond to them in that way. And you need to be obedient to them. You need to say, yes, sir. No, sir, or yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, whatever it is that they've asked you to do. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 4. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Colossians chapter three twenty. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And we were talking again this afternoon a little bit about raising kids. I think there's a little bit of a trick in parenting to breaking the will of a child and not breaking the spirit of a child. And that's a challenge as a parent. But I'm telling you, as moms and dads, you ought to really try hard to break the will and not the spirit. Uh, don't discourage your child. Don't, don't be so hard on a child. And I've seen some parents at times that the decisions were so chaotic, if I could use that word, or so uh, there, there was no consistency to, the, to their approach and their plan and their discipline that the kids never knew what to expect. Dad could blow up at any moment. And I'll tell you, you discourage a child when you do that. The child drops his eyes and he drops his shoulders and he, and he has no life in him when that kind of stuff happens. And I just want to encourage you, don't discourage your children. Uh, obey your parents, and, but parents, be careful in that process that you don't provoke your children to anger. Proverbs 22 and 6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. There's a lot of discussion about this verse. And I'll tell you where I've kind of landed on this verse is I really think parents need to be sensitive to what their children need, the way that they should go. And I'll give you a, kind of an example of that. In the case of Elizabeth, she's a very musical child, our oldest child, very musical child. So some of the decisions we made are, you know, go to band or that kind of thing. She may be good in mathematics. You might go into mechanical engineering. She might be good with children and you might want to go into school teaching or those kind of things. Direct a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. This verse did not say that you train up a child and you teach a child something and they will never leave the teaching you've taught them. That verse did not say that. Now, I can tell you the teaching will never leave them and they may walk away and they may walk away from the Lord for a period of time. But I promise you the teaching and training that you've given them will not separate themselves from there. It's just going to be like the prodigal son we talked about this week in Luke 15. And when he came to himself, what did he remember? My father's house has bread enough and to spare 
And he remembered the teaching that he had had previously, and that's where he went back to. And there are times when an individual may walk away from training and things like that, but I'll tell you, they don't walk away from the teaching that you've given them, and they'll come back. But train up a child. I think some of the emphasis on this verse is more positive. Train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they'll be blessed in that, and they'll not depart from it. Proverbs 22 and verse number 15, Foolish is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction shall drive it far from me. My dad lived by this verse. But I will tell you that, you know, when in our congregation, we've got 30 little kids that are under 10 years old and they're running and all that sort of stuff. You know what I expect a child to act like? A child. You expect that. They're children. But you know what I expect parents to do? Be parents. That's what parents do. Parents correct and instruct and teach and teach a child how to control himself or herself as the case would be. The rod of correction shall drive it far from him. I love this passage here. And Proverbs 25, verse number 28 says, He that hath no rule of his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. One of the things you're doing as a parent when you're training a child is you're teaching a child to rule his own spirit. When a child is two years old and the child is grabbing something that they're not supposed to grab. Now, a lot of parents can child-proof their houses. They put all the glass stuff up high and let Junior go wild. But I'm telling you, one of the important things you need to do, and I'm not saying you don't get dangerous stuff out of the way of a child, but one of the important things as parenting is teaching a child to rule his own spirit. That a child at a very early age can control what he does with his body. That will help him or her. I use it as a he like it's only a problem with boys. We had that challenge with girls too. They have to rule their own spirit. And moms and dads are trying to train them to do that. It's not that you don't love children. It's not that you don't like children. When you say no to a child, and you know what's sad to me? Is the parent that gets offended when somebody corrects their child. That's sad to me. Let me tell you why it's sad. And I'm not talking about a parent that is being vengeful or that kind of thing. I'm talking about, hey, junior, don't run out in the street. You're going to hurt yourself. And then the other mom gets offended. What are you doing correcting my child? You know who gets hurt in that deal? Your child gets hurt in that deal. You really ought to want somebody else. If they see your child doing something that they shouldn't be doing, your first instinct shouldn't be to defend your child, that your child is perfect and never made any mistakes. I can tell you something about your children. I may not even know your children, but I can tell you something about your children. They ain't perfect, and they're going to make mistakes. So are mine. And if somebody else sees my child doing something that they don't need to be doing, hey, we're not going to do that. I expect foolishness to be bound up in the heart of a child. They're children. But going and counting mufflers out on the freeway is not a good option. A child will hurt themselves. And if you see my child doing something that hurts themselves, you've got my permission to say something to them. Go, whoa, stop. And I, it will, I trust me, it will not hurt our relationship with you. It will benefit our relationship together. I will have an immense amount of respect for you. That you're not afraid to say, hey, that child's going to potentially get hurt and that child needs to be corrected. Now, I say that keeping in mind I'm not talking about somebody who abuses. And that's a different ball game. And you all know the difference in those things. Proverbs 20, verse number, tw- verse number 11. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it is right. And I will tell you, young folks, you'll be known for your doings. Even as a youngster... You'll know, you'll be known for what you do. You'll develop a reputation as a young person 
as to the type of young person you are, whether you do right stuff and pure stuff or whether you're a little, a little evil heathen child, you will develop a reputation for yourself. And I'll tell you as young folks, you don't want to develop a reputation that says, I'm an evil heathen child. It's not good for you. And I'll tell you sadly, young men especially, I'll tell you sadly, some of you guys grow up and you develop a, I'm not saying you guys would do that, but you develop this reputation at a young age that you're an evil heathen child and you get to be about 30 years old and you're really serious about life and you've grown out of a lot of that stuff and you're trying to focus on spiritual things and be involved in the church and older brethren have no confidence in you. And it has nothing to do with the fact that you're 30 years old and that you're trying to be serious about church. It has to do with the fact you spent the first 20 years of your life being an evil heathen child. You developed a reputation of yourself. You were known for your doings. And it takes years to overcome that stuff. It takes years to overcome it. I'm just encouraging you ahead of time. Don't be the evil heathen child. A child's known by his doings. Make, make sure people are saying, that's a child that's doing right and has pure thoughts and is doing good things and trying to make... Things happen. That's the type of person that you want to be. Proverbs 29 and verse number 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left himself shall bring his mother to shame. I was doing a Bible study with a young couple several years ago, and and they had their first baby. And that's a special time. And they were the stereotypical parents with the first child. Their child was perfect and needed nothing except their child they didn't want to even put borders around their child they wanted their child to experience all that life had to offer and so the very first bible study we went to they said we don't say no to our child we don't at all i mean absolutely not no borders we want our child to be expressive we want our child to express themselves and understand everything about life and the next time i went over to the bible study the child was missing half its first tooth I said, what happened? I said, well, the child climbed up on the couch, fell off the back side of the couch, and broke the tooth on the, on the tile floor. And so now we have a rule that you can't climb on the couch. Okay, now we're going to put boundaries around the child. But you know the sad part is? That's just one step too late. The child has already fallen off the back of the couch. What about a boundary ahead of time that said you can't climb on the couch? And fall over the back of the couch and et cetera. How about we put a boundary to begin with that says, hey, you're going to get hurt if you do that. You know, the Bible has dealt with that issue all along. I, I love it when new parents go, we're going to do something different. We're going to let our children, we're not going to say no to our children. We're going to do something different. And I will tell you, the reality is the Bible said a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. Children want borders, I promise you. They want borders. And I can promise you when a child is very, very little, there's a reason why we put them in a crib is it's a border. And I can tell you as they get older, the borders may be bigger and you may be saying you can't get out past 10 o'clock at night or whatever you have to be in by 10 o'clock, but there's still borders. But I can tell you the rest of their life, they're going to have borders. And those borders need to be defined by the word of God. And if they don't live by borders, they're going to have borders. You know what the borders are going to be? Prison walls. Because a child left to himself is going to bring his mother to shame. A child needs to understand borders and needs to recognize borders. Or he's, you will never ever in life, early on, figure it out. You will not get away from borders. There will be boundaries. There will be borders. Places you can and cannot go. Or you're going to be in prison and somebody's going to be telling you what you can and cannot do. 
That is the reality of life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 7 says, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And I will tell you right now, a dad that really truly loves his children is going to help those children be able to rule over their own spirit. He's going to discipline them. He's going to teach them. Now, obviously, the case of the mother as well. Proverbs 13, verse number 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Romans 2, in verse number 21. And I want to close with this. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thou thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal. Dost thou steal? You know, one of the best things you can do in your family is to be the example that you need to be. You can preach all day long, and these children are not foolish, and they're not ignorant. You can preach all day long, I don't want you to smoke cigarettes, or I don't want you to drink, or I don't want you to whatever. You can preach those things all day long, whatever the subject is. I don't want you to drink Kool-Aid. I don't want you to drink uh, Coca-Colas or whatever. You're not. That's not good for you. Or something. You can teach that stuff all day long, but I'm telling you, these folks are not ignorant. If you're doing it, they know you're doing it. And they're going to see the hypocrisy in what it is that you're teaching them. If you're going to teach a child not to steal from a spiritual perspective, and you're going to teach a child not to commit adultery, you're going to teach a kid uh, not to uh, commit fornication, you're going to teach a child not to lie, you're going to teach a child not to cheat, and all those principles of life, are you doing those things? I'm amazed at the parents that are involved in fornicating relationships and while teaching their children... No, no, you don't do that. That's what you're doing. And the reality is, you're teaching those children, you're teaching them through example. And I'd encourage you as parents, make sure you're living what it is that you're preaching. And that your life is an example of what you're preaching. And let me tell you, as we close, I want to share with you a little story. It's real easy for people to look at Ty and Lisa. And Ty and Lisa, we're very blessed. We've been married 34 years. And we've enjoyed being married. And I've married a good woman. And I love holding hands with her. And I love going home with her at night. I'm glad I don't have to take her back to her mom and dad's house at night. I'm thrilled to be married to Lisa. And, I, and we've shared a life together. we raised kids together. We've been blessed in a million ways. But it's real easy for people to look at our life and say, Oh, they've got, they're preachers. And they, they've got the perfect life. And they've got perfect kids. And they got you know, whatever. And I want to tell you, we don't. And we don't have a perfect relationship it has its challenges at times i can tell you typically when it has its challenges it's my fault uh our children are not perfect they have their challenges and their struggles that they deal with and the family i grew up in was not perfect and i told you a little bit in the beginning of the sermon about my mom and dad divorce let me tell you when my mom and dad divorced i grew up thinking that didn't happen to flemings we don't do that sort of thing we're going to live by the Word of God. And I went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. Not only that, we were probably the first ones in the building. And one thing I can give you credit for with my mom and dad, they took us to church and they sat us down on the pew. And that's, that's I mean, we lived church. That's That was the name of our, our, our life. Lisa and I were already married. And we already had children. And I got a phone call one day that my mom had left my dad. And I will tell you honestly, I was blindsided. And I will tell you honestly that the next three years of my life, I don't remember a lot about. I remember the chaos. I remember the focal point of destruction that was happening that consumed a lot of my mental energies. 
But I can tell you I don't remember a lot about our kids during those years and other things that were happening. But I can tell you some things I do remember. I'd sit in bed at night. Lisa would rub my back and she'd go, what, what we're going to do is what the Lord wants us to do. That's what we're going to do. I can tell you I give thanks to God for a woman that wants to do what God wants us to do. And I can tell you there's a lot of destruction happening in our home. And when I say our home, I mean my mom and dad's home. My mom left and we essentially had no relationship for the next 20 years. 20 years. I will give you a happier ending to that story. My mom in the last several years has come back to the church. And she goes to church with us. My dad on this side of the building and my mom on this side of the building and... And they get along with one another. And I'll tell you one other story. I can tell you when it gets better. My mom lost her brother. Her brother was killed. He was hit by a car and killed. And my mom came to church one Sunday morning. And she was bawling. She was totally hurting. My dad grabbed her. And she put her head 20-something years of garbage and damage and horrendous stuff. And he took her head and put it on his shoulder and he said, it's going to be okay. That's when you kind of know forgiveness has happened. And a lot of pain and a lot of misery and a lot of sorrow. It's over. My mom and dad stand there at church. They visit with each other in the foyer. Is it what it should have been? No. Is it what it could have been? No. Is that a shame? Yes. And I can tell you there's a ton of pain, a ton of sorrow that our family's gone through because of decisions that people have made. You know the reason why I talk to you about this stuff? Because this stuff is real. I'm telling you it's real in your world, it's real in my world. And if you moms and dads do not love one another and care for one another and raise kids and put your priorities in place... I'm telling you honestly, destruction happens. And we've suffered it in our home too. And I know you've got loved ones and people that you care about. And I know you've seen destruction. But don't sit there tonight and say, well, y'all got this perfect. It isn't. Well, I tell you what we do. We put one foot in front of another and we live life one foot in front of another. And we're going to try to make godly decisions in our home. Do we always? know? But I want you as a group of people to say, let's commit ourselves to doing what God wants us to do. Let's commit ourselves to doing what God has asked our families to do, moms to do, and dads to do. And that's the reason early in the week I talked to you about the standard of perfection. That's the standard in our home. I come short of it, but you know what the standard, if the standard doesn't change, it lets me know I need to say I'm sorry. I violated the standard. I came short of the standard. But I don't want the standard to change. I don't want the standard to come down. That's why my dad can sit there on a pew and say, Ty, keep preaching to young people that it's married for a lifetime, even though he's gone through a divorce. He doesn't want to change the standard of what it ought to be just because he's experienced something different. And I know life happens. And I know life is hard at times. But I want to tell you, we're part of a family. 
And had it not been for a wife that would hold my hand, had it not been for brothers and sisters in Christ that held hands with me, we walk through life together. And you're a congregation of people. You're going to see some tough times. And you're going to see Satan attack. And you're going to see the rains descend and the winds blow. And the floods come. But we're part of a family. And we braced ourselves for the bad times. And I tell you what, that really makes you appreciate the good times. And there are some good times. We've had some great times. And it really makes you appreciate them if you've experienced the bad. I hope none of you have to experience the bad, but I'm going to tell you right now, every one of us will in one way or another. Every one of us. It may not be the same story as my story, but you'll have a story. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your home that's in chaos. I would encourage you now, break the chain And you, maybe everybody else won't, but you make a decision that I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And your life will be blessed for it. You will see tragedy in a different sort of way when you're seeing it through the eyes of God. God understands sin. I'll tell you tonight, I'm looking at a room full of sinners, myself included. We're sinners. We're nothing short of the grace of God. And what an amazing, amazing thing to have God's grace to forgive. My mom's taught me some lessons. One of the big lessons my mom taught me is forgiveness. And I'm thankful for that. My parents' problems have taught me some lessons. One of the things they taught me is humility. Because guess what? Flemings do go through it. We do have challenges. We do have divorce. We do have pain. We do have suffering. It happens to us too. Just like everyone else. I've learned some lessons. And I would really hope for, especially for our young folks, you guys are looking at life ahead of you. Don't look at life short-sighted. Don't look at life and aim for here. Aim for this. Aim for what God wants you to do. And I know some things are going to happen in life. You'll come short of it. Say you're sorry. Repent, get back on the path, and keep heading down what God wants you to do. You're no different than anybody else in this room. If you came down to College Park and heard the stories of the people we have in that congregation, they're sinners that have come to Christ. And I'm thankful for them, thankful for every one of them. The church can help you tonight. We're going to close out this series of meetings, but don't leave here not have your relationship right with God. We're a part of a family. Are you a part of God's family? Make a decision today to be baptized into Christ. Won't you come while we stand and sing the song that's been selected?